0: Cast your mind back to the Jurassic period, when pterosaurs soared in the skies and plesiosaurs swam in the seas. Nah, I'm just playing. Cast your mind instead to Jurassic Park, the 1993 Spielberg classic that actually managed to change the way Americans thought about science. Because today we're talking about ancient DNA, the field of science that's the closest thing to what you see in the movie.
1: Ancient DNA research is a scientific practice of extracting, sequencing, and analyzing really old DNA from really old organisms. It can be fossil material that's anywhere from a couple of hundreds to thousands to hundreds of thousands and even millions of years old.
0: That's Dr. Elizabeth Jones.
1: I'm a historian of science and an author. And I'm currently the project coordinator of a new public science project at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences.
0: From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Bijan Stephen, and you're listening to Eclipsed. In this episode, we're going deep on how culture can affect science and vice versa. That's after the break. So, um, you know, leaving aside Jurassic Park, uh, what's the, what's the coolest thing about ancient DNA? Like what's the fascinating thing about
1: it? Oh, that's such a hard question. I know. <laughs> so really what I ended up emphasizing in my book is this concept of celebrity science and how media can and often does play a fundamental role in actually driving and the developing the discipline. and, um, in very much the same way that new technology can, that new hypotheses can, that research funding can, um, this media interest and influence is really fundamental to how ancient DNA research started off in the 1980s to how it is today, and it's not the only research field that that uses media in that capacity. But it's the first research field that I've been and others have been documenting in this way that uses the media to this degree and for this long period of time with a lot of success. And the really fascinating thing about the science of ancient DNA research is just the fact that DNA can survive for hundreds of thousands and even pretty close to that million year mark, which is sort of like the Holy Grail, at least throughout the 30 or 40 year history of this research field.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Um, to step back a bit, how do you refine ancient DNA? What's the process like? You, I assume you don't just stick like a syringe in a fossil and pull out some DNA. It's like more complicated than that.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> it's it's a lot more complicated than that. So disclaimer here, I'm not a geneticist. I am, I'm a historian of science, but I had Um, the opportunity to work with some incredible geneticists in London and and watch what they do. So you probably remember in high school biology, gel electrophoresis, you know, that little square of jello and you shoot something in it and electrodes move it along. So there's some basic DNA extraction techniques and technology that they use. But what's really tricky about the ancient DNA is that, one, it might not even be there. Two, if it is there, it's going to be extremely degraded, so you're going to be missing letters in the sequence, and you're going to have to re-piece them together. And that requires a lot of computer work and a lot of analysis. So it's uh, not a one-step process for sure. And Really, a lot of the making of meaning of the ancient DNA sequences, it comes down to statisticians and people with computer skills who can piece all of this back together.
0: Yeah, that is that is kind of fascinating. So you, you said the field is 30, 40 years old. Pretty new, pretty recent. What were some of the early attempts like to recover this ancient DNA?
1: Right. So the the first study that anyone's going to tell you about when talking about the history of ancient DNA research is the study of the quagga. It was published in 1984 in the journal Nature. A group of scientists um, in California, they'd been working on this for several years actually, and they were able to extract several hundred base pairs of DNA, which is not a lot really at all. You can't do a whole lot with it. They were able to Look at the, the phylogeny of Equus quagga. It looks kind of like a zebra, and it looks kind of like a horse. It went extinct about, at that time, it was probably about 100 years old. So they weren't extracting DNA from fossil bone, but they were extracting DNA from a museum specimen. They thought nothing was there. They found out there was something there, and they were able to tell a story and test some hypotheses about... Equus quagga and its relation to other ancient and modern horses so people will point to that as the first time that scientists extracted DNA and the reason why that wasn't why that's used as the starting point for a lot of historical counts is because it was published by some well-known scientists in a really well-known journal but really what I uncovered is that there's a lot of other work going on um, prior to that with trying to extract DNA from insects in amber, so that Jurassic Park hypothesis, trying to extract DNA from mummies, and um, trying to extract DNA from woolly mammoths. So there's a whole backstory to the official start of the field. The thing about history is, well, and as this podcast really gets at, is that it's not all about just names and dates and things that happened at exact Mm -hmm. times. It's about telling multiple stories from multiple viewpoints to really get a clearer, more holistic picture of what happened, why, and why it matters. So I do want to throw out some typical timeline dates, but to orient ourselves. So we have that first extraction of DNA from an old museum specimen in 1984, and then Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park came out in 1990, and then the movie came out in 1993, but what's going on prior to that is really setting the stage not just for ancient DNA research as a field, but for... Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park um, Mm -hmm. because a lot of that intellectual inspiration, which he clearly acknowledges in his book, um, came from some of this early research. So the Quagga study was an example. He cites some real research that had just happened about five years prior. But there are also some scientists at the time, also in California, who are trying to extract um, DNA from amber insects. And one of these researchers, his name's Charles Pellegrino, and he published an article in Omni. It's like a science fiction magazine. And um, he published an article in 1985 called Dinosaur Capsule, which puts this um, kind of pre-Jurassic Park hypothesis in print. Um, It didn't really get a lot of attention for some reason. And as a historian, it's really kind of hard to figure out exactly why. Because Momney was a pretty popular magazine that um, sounds like a pretty popular idea, this idea of bringing dinosaurs back to life. There were a lot of crickets around Charles Pellegrino's publication in 1985. And then the exact opposite happened when Michael Crichton really took this idea and brought it to life in Jurassic Park about five minutes later, or five years later.
0: Metaphorically five Yeah, years, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so does this, so what is what is the effect of Jurassic Park on the field? Does it like explode research and interest into this stuff?
1: Absolutely. So when Jurassic Park came out, there was already kind of an inherent public and media interest in this idea of extracting DNA from fossils. But Jurassic Park really put this idea into a visual image. It became like a, a cultural icon that people could point to, relate to, watch, read about, and talk about what the public knew about ancient DNA research, even if it wasn't accurate. They knew the words. They knew the terms. They knew the big ideas behind it. And not just the public interest, but also the professional interest. So throughout the book, there's just... Um, an incredible interplay between science and media and it influencing publication timing research funding research agendas people were testing out the Jurassic park hypothesis one thing that a lot of the interviewees that I interviewed they they wondered you know would ancient dna have progressed to the degree it did without Jurassic Park now we can't go back in time and see but The evidence is pretty clear that Jurassic Park played a fundamental role in moving this research field forward as quickly as it did. And that's
0: not usually the case, right? Like, usually it's the other way around. Science influences the media and not the media influencing science. Right. And people are like, okay, we saw Jurassic Park. We get it. We understand what's going on here. We can bring back dinosaurs. We can try at least. What was that like for people in the field? I mean, you've described, like, obviously, there were more people coming into the field, there's more publications and, or, like, more people doing more science, but I'm curious, like, what the researchers in the field at the time, you know, who were already working on this stuff felt. Like, how did their work change, basically?
1: So, there was um, an ancient DNA newsletter, and this was a pretty exclusive newsletter to a very small community of researchers at that time. It was published by a couple of researchers working at the Zoological Society of London, and it probably went out to maybe maybe a hundred or so um, interested scientists. And it started in, in I think the first one was 1991, 1992. It's this really fun kind of inside look into you know scientists talking about the research they do, but also talking about community gossip or they had little restaurant reviews and other fun stuff like that. And um, one of the researchers, Russell Higuchi, who actually works on some of the PCR technology for COVID, he was involved on that very first 1984 Quagga paper. He was the technician that was doing all the painstaking labor, trying to get just that little tiny bit of DNA out of that, like little tiny bit of tissue. And he wrote in there his excitement for the upcoming Jurassic Park movie, um, but also his reservations as a scientist being too optimistic or too speculative with the media and with the public about the research reality of being able to revive, not just extinct creatures like dinosaurs, but any other extinct organisms. Talk to the media about it, but also temper your responses. Because at that time you had a whole lot of public interest, but also fear of genetic engineering. So that was one of the earliest glimpses where you see that tension.
0: After the break, we futz with genetics. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray.
1: And I'm Leah President.
0: And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying <laughs> to pretend that I don't, right? Hold now. it in. Hold. And our current faves. And...
1: Luffy must have his due.
0: <laughs> and we agree on some things, but not on everything. I... Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say Oof. what you're going to say and I'll circle back. No, I...
1: Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. Every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.
0: If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters? And why? Why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season Four: The Anthrax Threat. Available now. Was there any backlash because, uh, like, a re like messing with genetics? Because I feel like there was like there was a moment in the late '90s, early 2000s where people were really suspicious of genetic engineering and like anything to do with genes, because this was also, I think, around the time that the Human Genome project was spitting itself up, mm-hmm. right? Like, and that was like working in the background.
1: There was some of that conversation that from genetic engineering and that was spilling over into ancient DNA, um, you would have a number of little science reports or media articles with that question can we bring back dinosaurs and if we can, should we? Um, the should we question has been around you know, for, for 40 years now, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still the question that frames a lot of the narrative around this idea of de-extinction, which is the new term for just bringing dead things back to life, especially extinct things. There's some really sophisticated research that's going on around it now by some pretty prestigious researchers that hold a lot of credibility and there's a lot of potential. But in the 90s, the ancient DNA community was still trying to figure out, can we even get DNA from some of these sources? Like, can we get DNA from humans reliably? Because there's this problem of contamination. So I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of the attention was on that question Can we get DNA? And if we can, how reliably or repeatedly can we recover it? So that was the main focus, but then you had that spillover worry about, well, if if we can, what does it mean for genetic engineering in the future? They weren't quite there yet, but they were getting there.
0: The science was still getting worked out, but the ideas researchers were exploring generated a lot of excitement.
1: So there's this thing called the hype cycle. This is not an original idea to me. So the idea is that there's a new technology. There's a lot of hype around it, a lot of excitement about what it can do, how it can change our world. And then um, people jump on it, test it out. There's a lot of high expectations. And then it hits a peak. And then there's this time of disillusionment. So in the 90s, you hit that peak, and a lot of it has to do with the hype for Jurassic Park, but it also goes hand-in-hand with a series of publications that came out in the 90s claiming that they'd actually gotten DNA from million-year-old insects in amber. So it was incredible because it was like, Jurassic Park came out, oh, and scientists can really do this. I think Nature published it these findings the day before the Jurassic Park release in the theaters, but the day after it premiered. But really the hype hit a dead end when scientists started trying to reproduce the results because in science, reproducibility is the name of the game. Like it's, it's exciting. You want to find something that's new that no one has found before, but the goal is not to just leave it at that. And that really had a profound effect on the credibility of the field because it wasn't just that scientists were taken aback, but the public was too because all of this had played out on a public stage. And that's the whole thing about the celebrity science. It's not just science happening in the labs. It's science happening on the public stage.
0: But that loss of credibility didn't kill the field. Some people are still working to bring the science of ancient DNA closer to what we see in the movies.
1: It's really a little bit less of Jurassic Park and it's more of, you know, the Pleistocene Park. Have you heard of this?
0: <laughs> no, I have not.
1: Okay, yeah, I know. It's a real it's a real thing. Okay. So, great. um <laughs> so Pleistocene Park, it was this idea that was pitched actually, gosh, I guess maybe about 20 years ago, by um a couple of Russian scientists who wanted to create a legit Pleistocene park in northern Siberia. So the idea is not just to put a woolly mammoth back on earth, but to recreate the entire ecosystem and the environment Mm -hmm. in which the woolly mammoth lived. So recreate the tundra and have the plants, the smaller animals, the bigger animals that really made that Made and mm-hmm. sustained that ecosystem. So it's kind of like conservation biology with a twist. This is where we get into the kind of credible and seems possible kind of research that, yeah, we might have a woolly mammoth. And this kind of research is going on by George Church and a new program called Colossal. And I think, though, how we're going to get a woolly mammoth, there, there are a couple of different ways. That you can think about doing this. It's you know, it's it's not about you know using the DNA and cloning, but it's about genetic engineering, um, and and gene editing.
0: Right, we're gonna de-evolve something. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and and crisper it up. Yeah, as opposed to like yes. uh, trying to resurrect something via like Dolly the sheep cloning. Yeah,
1: exactly. And it kind of like the chickenosaurus. You know, it's instead of bringing back a dinosaur, you know, we can reverse-engineer or Mm de-evolve a chicken, or something like that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah, because birds are dinosaurs, yeah. no.
1: Exactly, so you're right, that's a great way to think about it. Uh, Definitely, as as we both know, it's more complicated than that, but that's the answer to the question. You know, are we going to have a woolly mammoth? Sounds like we might be pretty close to having something like it. And one thing I love that my ancient DNA researchers would always say when we talk about de-extinction, You know, a lot of them got really ethical and philosophical about it all, which is, you know, is it a woolly mammoth or is it just an elephant? You know, what does it mean to have a recreated species?
0: That's a hard question to answer. Luckily, in the meantime, we still have new Jurassic Park movies. Special thanks to Dr. Elizabeth Jones. Check out her latest book, Ancient DNA, The Making of a Celebrity Science, wherever you buy your books. Eclipsed is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Canyon-Meyer. We're produced by Tanita Rahmani, Lane Gerbig, and Joe Hawthorne. Archival research by Caitlin Rathy. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael Canyon-Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Schayer, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. Special thanks to Dr. Elizabeth Jones. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsed at campsidemedia.com or tweet at us at eclipsedpod. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijon Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm Bijon Cakes. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.